Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Real stories, real people, real hope. My name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your humble host. And joining me, as always, my hostess with the mostest, my beautiful wife, her name is... Just Jen. And you're along with us as we keep this a hope train and moving on down the tracks. Choo-choo! Yes, I love that part. That's my favorite part, Jennifer. <laughs> I called you Jennifer even. I know. That doesn't mean you're in trouble, though. I'm that just never in trouble. You are, well, sometimes. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way it goes in our house. She is never, ever in trouble. <laughs> if there's anybody that's going to be in trouble, it's going to be me that's in trouble. Well, you're never in trouble. Sometimes. Mm. Sometimes you yell at me when I'm driving. Well, that's not in trouble. That's just, I'm trying to get you to use your brain. (laughs) (laughs) I like to use my foot when I'm driving. I don't like to use my brain. (laughs) I know that. Yes, this is true. So how are you doing today? I am super good. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I guess so. For a Monday. For a Monday. Yeah. I know, really, right? Starting off the week right. Just <laughs> getting into it. I'm, I'm excited. We got a hope train us moving on down the tracks. We got a new session. We got a new interview. We got a new yeah. guest. We got a new... <sighs> another story. Another story. Yeah. Another story of perseverance. Mm-hmm. Another story of hope. Yeah. Another story of light. Light. Light for others. And God said, let there be light. He did at that. So I'll get into who we're going to interview in a second. But uh, I thought maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe it's just, it's just time, Jen. It's just time. There's been too much time. It's time for jokes. It's time to share some brevity, some, some levity. Some funny. Some funny. Yeah, let's do that. Let's let's share some funny. All right. You got a joke you want to share for our audience to get the get the show rolling off on the right way? I always have jokes up my sleeve. I know you do, and they're always funny. Yeah, I know. Always food. Do you got a food joke? I do have a food joke. All right. So I wanna I wanna hear it. Why don't you go okay. first? Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. What do you call cheese that is sad? Sad cheese. <laughs> Unhappy cheese. Not Colby cheese, not Jack cheese, not cheddar cheese, not Swiss cheese. I'm trying to go through it. And I don't know. <laughs> what do you call cheese that isn't happy? You almost got it. What was it? Blue cheese. Oh, that's the one I missed. That's the best cheese. You know, sometimes these answers seem so dang obvious. They make me feel not smart when I don't get it. <laughs> It's kind of like, how could you not get that? Clearly, it should have been blue cheese. Clearly. But it just doesn't, you know, like it just doesn't. It didn't even pop into your brain. It didn't pop into my I'm, brain. I've been trying to get you to use your brain. I know. Well, you, sometimes you tell me I'm the smartest person you know, and then other times you tell me I'm not using my brain. So, you, like, I don't know where I fall. You're not very smart with stupid jokes. <laughs> Now that's where I come in. Maybe, I'm really smart with stupid jokes. Maybe I'm too smart for stupid jokes. Maybe that's why I don't get it. You just don't. Yeah. You Maybe don't I care. take it too literal. You probably do. Yeah, I am trying to save my ego here because I don't, don't want to not be smart in nothing. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got a joke for you. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Here we go. I'm. I'm. We're going to see who's funniest. Okay. All right. Here we go. Okay. What do Alexander the Great and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Alexander the Great. And Winnie the Pooh. Alexander the Great and Winnie the Pooh. What do they have in common? I know this one. I just can't think of it. You just can't? No, what is it? They have the same middle name. Oh. <laughs> Maybe I didn't know that one. 
Alexander the Great Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> See that? Isn't that the best one? Do I win? No. Did I win the joke contest? That was horrible. What? Yeah, that wasn't good. Oh my gosh. No. Well, we'll leave it up you to gotta the audience. You got to try better. <laughs> be better. <laughs> do better. Do better. Be better. Whatever I need to do. All right. Well, uh, joke time's over. I want to get into a fascinating interview. I've got Deanna Freeman coming on. And Deanna's somebody that we've met through ULA. And ULA is all about personal development. They're a personal development company that focuses on balanced living in seven key areas. Faith, Mm -hmm. family, fitness, friends, field, fun, finance. And Deanna's been involved in living ULA for years now, Mm -hmm. and she never, ever would have guessed that ULA would be something that could turn her life around the way that it's turned it around. She had an event happen to her family, and she Mm -hmm. credits ULA with really being the thing that brought everything around full circle to where now she can see some sort of blessing in the midst of the trial she can see some grace coming out of this she can see some purpose for it and so we're going to talk with her about what happened and we're going to talk to her about how she weathered it and i think it's going to be a great story of hope yeah should we call her get her online should call her all right here we go well it is my pleasure to welcome deanna freeman to the show deanna welcome to the show how are you doing today Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is sincerely our pleasure. You know, I've been fellowshipping with you and hearing you on our morning clubhouses. And I just, I was eager, telling Jen today, I was eager to get you onto the podcast to hear more about your story. So thank you for sharing as you've done on the clubhouses every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is early for us. I hear you. It's eight for me, and it's still early. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, where do you live? Uh, Tell us a little about your family. You married? You have kids? Yeah. So um, I am fifty-two, almost fifty-three. So yes, I have two kids. I have five grandkids. I am from New Orleans, Louisiana, and I do still live here. Although I did a little stint in California for four years, which was nice. I loved that. I was in the Santa Cruz area. Um, I am on marriage number two, (laughs) and interestingly, I married someone that I've known since I was in junior high, and we just kind of reconnected after I went through my divorce, which is some of the struggles and trauma and things that we'll talk about here today that will lead to this message of hope because it is out there. Awesome. I, I can't wait to uh, hear that. But before we move on, I just got to say, Jen and I have been to New Orleans, Nolans, however you, 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 yeah, Nolans from the South, right? We've been, we've been there one time and funny story, like we get there and I've got a, a good friend of mine that we're there with and it's his wife and Jen and I, and we're going down, you know, what is it? Bourbon street? Is that the, the, the main thoroughfare on a that's, weekend? That's well, that's that's the tourist party street. Yes. Yes. All right. So that's we were where in the, they have the hurricanes. Yes, the hurricane <laughs> drinks. Right. Like so, we found we, we probably had you know one or two hurricanes by this time. But here, here's the whole thing that you'll find funny. So not ever being there before, and I didn't do any research before going there. You know, all of a sudden we see. Lots of ladies walking around with all these beads around their necks. So this guy and I get this idea that that's the way that they're supposed to 
to go. Like you're supposed to buy beads for your for your lady and have the <laughs> your lady have these beads around her neck, right? Uh, so we walk into this store. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I'm like, okay, I gotta load Jen up with some beads and you know, this guy Steve, he's loading up his wife uh you know, with beads as well and we're just walking down the street and we could not understand why they kept getting accosted to be, you know, showing themselves down Bourbon Street somehow, some way. And we did not connect to the fact We're that it like, was the beads. These people are weird here. <laughs> why do people keep approaching my well, wife should... asking to see her, you know, lady parts? Right. Well, they thought you earned those beads. I know. <laughs> That's what we them. figured out after the fact. We, fi- we figured that out a little later. But, you know, the, on first arrival, we didn't read the instructions book to how to navigate mm. Nolans. No. So that's our, that's our right. little funny story well, in the, in the background. Well, there you go. Fun time. Well, we, we did cap time. it off though. The, 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 the best moment of the whole trip was eating at Emerald Lagasse's, yeah. uh, was it Nola's? Is mm-hmm. that what it was? Nola's, right yeah. And we had, it's it, to date the most expensive meal I've ever had in my life. <laughs> yeah. And also probably the best meal I've ever had in my life, like five courses. Jan took us like four hours and it was like 700 bucks for like four of us. Yeah. The degustation meal. It was like the total experience, a bottle of wine with each course. And (sighs) since then we we no longer drink. (laughs) (laughs) Eating here is, is, is legit. It's serious. You know, you gotta be, you gotta be prepared for it. Oh, I'm always you know. prepared. Jen's <laughs> always prepared to eat. <laughs> Do a cleanse a week before and the week exactly. after. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Get your body ready. Get your body ready for what That's you're going to have. Well, uh, why don't we jump in? And I, you know, I know you got a story of of hope to share. And I know uh, in the in the background, we've talked a little bit about what that story's like. So I'll let you set it up. You know, however you want to set it up. But why don't you go ahead and begin to share where your uh, journey starts. Okay, so I feel like what I'm going to start is not in the past. I'm going to start where I connected with a uh, framework that made me notice all of the things that I needed to deal with. And that's kind of really where it starts. That happened in 2015. I was introduced to what is called ULA. And when I started reading that book, it really hit me. I was in a major emotional and traumatic place um, and trying to recover from some serious trauma in my life. And I, it had been a few years, but I didn't realize that I wasn't doing the things I needed to do. And the book that you're um, talking about is ULA, uh, Find Balance in an Unbalanced World, right? That's the book that you're referencing? Right. And that was the original one, too. So, yes. And it's uh, by Dr. Troy Amdahl and Dave Braun. And those are two doctors that have worked together in the personal development field. Um, so I met them in 2015, loved what they had to say, bought the book, read the book, and said, Whew, I got a lot of work to do. And so I'll tell you what the trauma was and the situation that I had come through. And I'll try to get through this without totally breaking down. We'll see how that goes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're with friends. So, you know, just just know. It's a process. Anyway, so it's funny because I've talked about this as part of my healing process. But, you know, it's still painful. Uh, I went through a divorce. It was a long and messy divorce. The divorce actually took 
seven years and I was coming out of an abusive relationship. So that had already taken its toll and I didn't actually end the relationship. There was a lot of hangups and beliefs about failing in that regard, in that area, my kids not having a father, all kinds of things. And so that was already some trauma and abuse that I was dealing with. But when we came through that situation, uh, my kids were, at the time, almost 12 and 14. And so we had an in-law, not a blood relative, who said, oh, you know, I have a lot in common. My son is two years older than my daughter. I have a lot in common with, you know, him, and we will just hang out. I'm going to step in and I'm going to help out, you know, take him on some jobs with me, you know, help him get a little extra money in his pocket. He can pay for his cell phone or his car insurance, things like that. Um, and they started, you know, hanging out and this was going to be, you know, a little bit of help with my kids. And you, you were probably um, so, receptive to it at the time, just because like to your, to what you were saying, you already processed the divorce and then you're thinking about it from the context of your kids not having a father figure. And then here this, you know, man comes into your life that's, that's not a blood relative, but a relative, an in-law and says, Hey, I can help. Like I can take on some mentorship with your son and come alongside you. So I could, I could see how that would be something that would be attractive or, you know, beneficial to you at the time. Yes, and we were close. My family's very close. This was my sister's husband, and we we vacationed together. We hung out together. We were in family reunions together. Um, they loved the same music. He introduced. He was he was a musician, and he introduced my kids to a lot of different uh, artists and different bands that we still are in love with till today. So it was. Because I came through a controlling situation with the abuse, it was a breath of fresh air to just have somebody around who was free and would hang out and then, you know, take my kids and and, and teach them things that they didn't know. Um, and, and, and initially it was fine. That's what it was. But um, we apparently didn't know him the way we thought we did. And he had been a part of our family for a while, and uh, we knew that he had some issues with drugs that went back and forth, back and forth. And it wound up that he introduced my kids to drugs. And Oh, my gosh. This, right. And then this became an issue where I was struggling to fight with them to see the flaws in this relationship by this time. So this is about a year into them hanging out with him or so. Did you know that and he was the origin of their access to drugs? I mean, was that apparent initially or did you not know that? No, that was apparent initially because of the fact that he also had my brother who is six years older than my son. So they're closer in age than my brother and I. I'm 16 years from my brother but he's six years older than my son. So it kind of all got wrapped up because we found out he got arrested. And that's how we found out all of the, the seriousness of it. And at that point, we were like, OK, this has got y'all have to pull back from this. But then when you have teenagers <laughs> trying to tell your teenager something's not good for them when they don't see that. I mean, teenagers just kind of think they know everything else. They think they're invincible, invincible. They think that they 
are fine if they have it under control, but yet they don't have the really the brain function, the fully developed brain to be able to actually understand this. Yeah. Um, and, and you're talking about the I man mean, that was that that was coming alongside them, this in-law. He got arrested. Yeah. It wasn't one of your children that got arrested. No, he got arrested. Okay. And then wound up on, you know, probation. He's a talker, so he got himself out of it. As a matter of fact, I think we actually had someone we knew that helped him walk through the process, got him on probation. But at this point, you know, I was very leery and was saying, you guys need to pull back from this relationship. Um, I don't care about the money. I don't care about the jobs. I don't care. This is not okay. Um, but he was still around because he was married to my sister. So, so we had this period in which that was going on. Um, finally they separated my sister and him. Uh, but the damage was already done because at this point he had manipulated, you know, my kids, he is a master of manipulation, but he also wound up molesting my daughter. So everything shifted and he took the most advantage that he could of a 13 year old child. And so that went on for a year, to be honest, where I struggled to discover the truth when you have teenagers who aren't forthcoming. And the big part is, you know, that her brother and her her uncle, my brother, they did not know that this was going on. Um, so his form of manipulation, of course, and this is part of the course when you're dealing with people who are pedophiles or people who have this illness, that they, they convince the person to be quiet. They convince them that they're in a, a, a normal and loving relationship, but they also convince them that they need to be quiet about it because other people won't accept it. And, and, and when you threaten to talk or you threaten to say something, his MO was, you know, if you did that, everything's going to fall apart. We're not going to be able to see each other. And, you know, I'm going to kill myself. And that's what he put onto a 13 year old child. <laughs> so it was a very messed up situation. Ironically, the way I found out about it was that my son, who was still a minor at the time, he was 17. This was at, my daughter actually ended this on her own. Um, she is the strongest person you'll know. Both of my kids are really strong. She ended this on her own. And even though I had tried to find out, like I knew, I, I knew, I knew, um, but I, you can't do anything if there's nobody talking. Like there's literally no action that I could take. So, and then, and then a, a guy would, like that will use that situation to make you think you're crazy. You know, he'll make he'll make the situation seem as though it's not what it is, and then you you sit there second guessing yourself the whole time. Like, am I really? Am, am, is this really happening? No, I must be imagining this. This can't be, and then it is, and that you know, it's like you fighting with that inner spirit voice that's saying, "Listen, there's some problem here." Yet, in the worldly sense, you're not getting any of the of the information that you needed to to make that a concrete knowing. You know, right? So that was what happened at first and that is what was happening while it was going on 
once she actually stopped it, I knew for a certainty. I knew because I know my kids, but I still couldn't get her to admit it. It took me an entire year to get her to admit it, a, a little bit over a year. And the way that that came out is um, we were at a block party, um, you know, in, in, a, in a suburb of, of where I live. And um, they have, you know, little hot rod cars and stuff like that. And we stopped in at this restaurant that usually, like, it, it's a restaurant and a bar. And during the day, anybody can go in there. And then when they set up for nighttime with the bands in the bar, um, the kids have to leave. Well, they were going around collecting uh, the cover charge and checking people's IDs. My son was in the bathroom, which he wasn't saying, obviously. Um, but he was in the bathroom and he was getting ready to leave to go get his sister from work. He was in the bathroom smoking weed and with one of his friends. And obviously there's no smoking, much less smoking a drug, which I, now has been, you know, a lot more has been decriminalized about it. But then was just like, you know, no. And this is a town that's very staunch, you know. And so he did get arrested. I turned around to my sister slapping me going, they're arresting him. They're arresting him. And I didn't know what she was talking about. Oh, and my gosh. So here you are, a mother, watching your, at this time, he was 14 or 15? 17. He was 17 at this time because he started out at 14, a little bit over 14. Um, 15 when all of the stuff happened with his uncle and his sister. Now, he did his uncle that. ever do anything to him? Was it was it just your daughter or was it your son as well? Just, just her. We have approached that subject. <laughs> it was just her as far as molestation. Um, with him, it was just the introduction of the drugs. Um, so here you are drugs, watching your 17-year-old get handcuffed and arrested, which I can't not mm-hmm. even imagine what it would be like as a parent mm-hmm. to witness that. And one of his friends, both of them. They, they lived in, his friend lived in Florida. He was in town visiting with us. So his mom wasn't even here. You know, I went outside and, and I, I stood in front of him. And I'm like, what is going on? And, and, and you want to know the most helpless feeling it was in that moment that, you know, the cop was like, take your hands off of him. I'm like, he's my kid. He's like, I don't care. Take your hands off of him. You can follow us over to, they have a little small city jail right there um and so we walked over there they booked them and then send them home with me they were they weren't going to keep them they're not they're minors and ultimately he you know he they won't even let parents pay the fines for this uh they can't do anything because he's a minor as far as jail is concerned or anything um they could have i guess considered juvenile but he's never been in any trouble not even a speeding ticket so um they just gave them some community service. Um, we did get an attorney, but ultimately that's all that happened was they got some community service so that they could get themselves straight. And but I, I like that with the courts, made them take some responsibility for what they did. But that night, what happened was I had reached my, my wall. I had hit my wall. And I was over all of the secrets. I was over all of the things that were going on under my nose and acting like I didn't know when I did know and I couldn't get them to talk about it. So when we got home, I, I just, I confronted my daughter and I said, I know that this happened, 
And I need you to say it so that we can move forward and take care of it. And she finally did. So at this point, you know, we stayed up all night crying, talking. My son did not know. So he, he had found out just maybe two months before this um, that she finally admitted it to him and um, one of her friends. And, uh, you know, so we walked through that process. We were up all, all night. At that point, I knew that if I didn't take some type of immediate action to remove this person out of our lives, and it's not just my life. It's my son who doesn't comprehend that this is not his friend. It's my brother who doesn't comprehend that yet either because they're, they're still young. It's my sister who is still, even though they were separated, they were not divorced. It's a whole lot. It's a whole lot because it's in the middle of your family. So the next morning, I, I basically, I called my sister. She was with my mom. And I said, y'all need to come over here because this is what happened. Literally blurted out, he had sex with my daughter. And uh, they came over. And I talked with them. We all talked as a family. My family, again, is very, very close. And so we talked with them. And I said, I am going to do what I have to do to get him arrested and convicted. At the time, my daughter was extremely resistant because she didn't want to have contact with him and she didn't know what this was going to look like. So that's when we tapped into a nonprofit foundation. It's called Hope House. And we worked with them. They talked with her. They worked with her. They helped us with the medical side of it because you do have to go through the medical side, even though we knew that it had been too long for them to find any proof on the medical side. You still have to go through that. So that, you know, was another thing. Then we set this whole thing up. She gets her courage to talk to him and the their recordings while she's talking to him and telling him some things that we kind of set up to get him to admit what he did and he did so this he so this is did. like a wire basically so she she's well, in a situation is, where this, she's this got a phone tap okay this is, this is them recording on the phone and the problem was that the recording did not work oh here my our gosh. side of the conversation and not his so, so she, she goes that, so she goes through this this torment in, in essence, because, you know, this has become a much bigger thing. She's realizing the gravity of it. She realizes how wrong it is. Now she wants nothing to do with it. But in terms of actually doing something about it, bringing him to justice, she's got to be involved. So she musters up the courage to have this conversation. It's all planned out. She has the conversation. He admits to it. But then there's no audio. There's no recording of it. Right. Oh, my right. gosh. So shaking and trembling and it didn't work. And the sheriff was beside himself. He was like, I cannot believe it because he heard everything, but we don't really have it. So these guys, I'll have to say, these guys know what they're doing. They are amazing with dealing with these victims and 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 getting getting what they need done. 
So he he said, we need to devise another plan. She said, I can't do this again. Um, you know, she was physically, you know, trembling, shaking, trying to get through this conversation and hold it together. So my son at this point is starting to recognize the gravity of all of this and says, I mean, his, his, he was at this point in anger and he said, I'll, I'll, I'll get it. I know I can get it from him because they were the ones that hung out as buddies. Right. So he's like, you know, what do I need to do? I'll do it. I can get it. I know I can. And so basically they wired him. So him at age 17 had to wear a wiretap and trap who he thought was his best friend. After he lost his first male role model, his father, now he has this second one that has betrayed him even more. And he said, I'll do it. I'll do it. So he did. And he did. He did it. He got it. And they got the recordings. He trapped him again in a different place to get the arrest once they got it all passed through the court to arrest him. And then they brought him in and ultimately he confessed. The thing that this did, and I hope that this is something that gives people out there some courage, because the thing that this did was remove him from everybody's life that he could have continued to have an effect on. He would not have gone down easily. He would have not backed away without a fight. He thought he was smarter. And had he remained a free person, he, he would have continued to wreak havoc. And no one would have had the chance to heal. And no one would have had the chance to grow, like literally grow up so that they could see this from the vantage point of a 25-year-old and not a 17 and a 15 year old. Yeah. So, and that was a big deal and that mattered to me. And I knew he was already out on a probation. So it increased some of the time that he had to spend because he broke the law, which you don't get to do when you're on probation. And you held him accountable. He was held accountable for the decisions that he made and he has to pay the price like that's what the justice system is for and i I, just going back to what you said i just want to take a moment and just like how was that for you i mean you're sitting here your daughter goes through what she goes through to have no recording like that that was basically just torment there for her and then your son like i could see you having a moment of pride oh my gosh you know he's trying to step up to the plate here he is trying to help the situation save his sister you know, hold this man accountable. But then there's got to be a part of you too that's going, oh my gosh, like, you know, here's my 17-year-old son going to face the lion, you know, in essence, to try to bring him to justice. And like, so you had to have like a thousand different emotions and feelings going on at the time. I, I was so tied up in emotions that I was probably the most unhealthy I've ever been in my life. Because I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. Uh, It it was just, yes, the whole toll of everything. Because my whole world was trying to deal and keep my family as a unit 
functioning and that had already fallen apart to a large degree. And then this just compounded it, uh, you know, exponentially. Like there's no like number you could put on that. And, um, and so, yeah, so for me, this is where, this is kind of where, now we're back to where I started, where this framework kind of moved in to my life. So now we're at this point, he got arrested in 2014. I got introduced to ULA in 2015. And, and for the benefit of our listeners, let, let me just explain that ULA is a lifestyle framework that you plug your life into that helps you to develop a life of balance, growth, and purpose in seven key areas, faith, family, friends, fitness, field, fun, and finance. But more than that, it starts to address things like blockers in your life, things like fear, guilt, envy, self-sabotage, lack of focus, laziness, and also accelerators in life like gratitude, love, wisdom, etc. It's a complete lifestyle framework to plug into. That's the modern equivalent. But back when you were doing it, you had read it through a book and started to just, you know, plug your life into it. And then this landmine situation is going on at the time. Right. And to be honest with you, um, when people talk about uh, what they call God winks, right? These moments where things come into your life and you know, you know that you know that you know that it wasn't just by accident that that came into your life, is that was this. I listened to them speak. I got the book. I read the book. I was 100% saw myself for the first time in a really long time, like since I was a kid. Okay. And I, so I committed to, I actually, I had some friends of mine and, and this is, this is amazing when it comes to community. We all listened to this together. They knew exactly what was going on in my world. And these two friends decided that they wanted to go to Ulapalooza in 2016 and they were taking me with them. So, and um, Ulapalooza is a live Ula event where a whole bunch of people that want to live a life of balance, growth, and purpose can come together to to dream and goal set about their future in these seven key areas. It's it happens once a year, and it's an event of fellowship, camaraderie, community, and that's what you're talking about, right? Right. So, and I will get into that a little bit because when we went, um, so this was a, it is a live event. But we went to a, at the time they were running it more than once. So we didn't go to Vegas, which is where they typically hold it annually. Um, but that was the last year that they actually did it in a couple of different places during the year. So we wound up in Dallas with a very small group of people. And you get this one-on-one attention from these mentors who wrote this book. And they give you two days of intensive work. And when I tell you I was emotionally drained, I, I couldn't, I, it was like I was drunk from the emotional impact that this had. But well, what I realized. Let's just talk just for a moment, because like in, in terms of processing it, what what were you going through? Because I think in in kind of us talking about this particular interview, you were saying that you were wrestling with a lot of guilt over the situation, like guilt as a mother over the situation that happened to your kids. And so was was that a big part of what you were wrestling with emotionally? 
Yeah, that's what I, uh, I was getting ready to talk to. And that was when we went to this, as you had just mentioned a minute ago, they have a segment of this workshop, this two-day intensive experience, really. They have a section that goes through blockers, which you had mentioned some of those. And then they have a section that goes through those accelerators, things that you want to tap into to make sure that you can overcome some things that are blocking you. Well, obviously, when we were going through the blockers, guilt of, of course hit me, especially because we talked about this in the sense of um, the things that you have done wrong that you should feel guilty for and maybe need to apologize for. And then also sometimes just shame, shame over things that maybe you couldn't control or you or, or, or put on to you by somebody else. And there was so much of both of those things that were going on for me. Number one, I felt... Of course, 100% that I failed my children. I did not protect them in this situation. And that is a true statement. It is hard for me to say that because they are my world. And I mean, we wish we all could keep our kids in a bubble and keep them from everything. Um, but I didn't. I failed in that, that arena, in that area, in that regard. Was it my fault? that this particular item happened or thing happened? No. I mean, this was somebody else's actions, but there was an area in which I did not protect them to the degree that I should have or needed to. And I have had this moment with them because we talked about it and I've asked for forgiveness for not protecting. And if you've seen anything about this type of situation, there are many kids who are very resentful and angry at their parents for not protecting them in this type of situation. I do not have that with my kids. Again, I am so blessed with super, super resilient and strong kids. Um, are they perfect? Are their lives perfect right now? I think my son actually struggles more than my daughter, but but they are super resilient and strong. They take um, after their mother. This, <laughs> maybe. This is um, something that you don't actually have a real recover from. It's more of working through phases as you approach it in different phases of your life. It comes back up and you work through phases and then the things settle and it gets better and it's not always on your mind, but it still just kind of comes back around and it comes up. So the thing that hit me at this particular event was when we moved to the accelerators and we got to the second one that they do. The first one is love. And the second one is gratitude. And I, gratitude was a blocker. Like I, I, you guys um, know the story that is in the book of how Dr. Dave worked into gratitude and had to find gratitude in all situations. We are they, they give this experience and they tell us we need to find gratitude in everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And for those that are unfamiliar and, with the book, you know, let me just say that the, the story that she's referencing is a story about one of the authors, Dr. Dave Braun, his nephew, uh, JJ, um, as it, while in high school, ended up with cancer and uh, fought the cancer into remission, but because of the radiation therapy, uh, leukemia came back, I want to say a year 
after he was in remission for cancer and uh, leukemia ended up taking his life. And in that process, um, Dr. Dave, you know, through the process of dealing with JJ and his illness and where he was at in the hospital, you know, this gratitude, Dave would talk about gratitude with the sister and gratitude over the situation and being grateful for this. And ultimately the story ends with Dr. Dave sharing a letter that he was given after his nephew had passed away. And, you know, JJ talks about being so grateful that it was him and not one of his siblings, so grateful that it was him that got cancer and not one of his parents, so grateful that it was him that had it and had to deal with it than one of his friends. And so just this, just, I mean, I get goosebumps and I get welled up just like everyone else does here in the story, but here's this, this kid being grateful that he's the one having to fight this battle and he's the one that ultimately had to pay the price of fighting that battle. And it's a hard thing to understand how can you be grateful when you're facing a life or death situation. And more so is one, or maybe not more so, but then you have to be a parent or this uncle who is watching this happen to your child and be grateful. And that's where I was looking at it from. You know, I was coming at it like, I don't have to be grateful for this. I'm not going to be grateful for this. And you can ask Dave and he'll remember this. He knows this experience because I was so stuck and just crying. And he came over and coached me personally. And I said, I cannot see why or where I should be grateful for this. Now, I'm telling this to a person who lost someone. He, his nephew is gone and he found, my kids are here. And I'm in my brain, I am reasoning through that. And in my heart, I'm saying, no, I don't have to be grateful for this. No way. You can't make me. I was like a, a, a two year old. You can't make me do it. And he said, you have to do it and you have to find a way. And so he was not easy on me. And the next year when I visited him back at the next event, he was like, you were kind of pissed. And I was like, yes, I was. It was definitely that. Um, As I think any parent listening would be like, that's just not what you want to hear. And, and, you know, like, I, I also like to know what you were thinking about in terms of your faith at the time, too, because like I could see it easy being easy for you to, you know, go, God, why did you let this happen? Like, how? why did this happen? Like, how could you allow this to happen? I mean, I could see that it would not only affect... That could, go ahead. That could be like another hour talk, okay? <laughs> but suffice it to say, yeah. Um, I mean, I you did have those conversations. It was it was affecting you that um, way, right? There was, a, there was a very big component of this because we were all in the same faith walk that really shook me to my core and I probably still one of the areas that I suffer from in this area um, because there was some things that could have been done to prevent this and some patterns that he had that we were not made aware of and we should have been made aware of it before my sister even married and we should have been made aware of it that's a difference that that subject is just so much whew. anyway um, so yes <laughs> there were some significant areas of faith I will say, though, and in all of that, that I did not lose trust in God. There were some man issues that I had in my faith walk, some organized um, religion issues, possibly. But I did not lose 
faith in my creator. I know for a certainty that this is not what he has meant for us, but I know that if he gave it to me, that I would come through it. And we have, we have. So that part did not go away. As a matter of fact, that part probably I leaned into a little bit more and probably got a little bit of a closer walk with my creator, even though it became less about the rest of the faith walk and the community that I had tapped into at the time. Yeah, I think when you when you experience um, crisis or trauma, you know, it's that cry of that heart. It's that it's that little kid in you that just is pleading to understand and you can feel God come close to you. You can feel his presence. You can you, you know, I've never felt closer to God than when I was going through the fire, going through right. some sort of significant challenge in my life that I did not see a way to overcome or how to come out of it or how to solve it or how to, you know, just endure it per se. And that's when I felt the closest. So I do understand that, you know, sometimes I can strengthen you in certain areas and, you know, to your point, sometimes it can challenge you, but, um, going back to, you know, the conversation about gratitude. So how did you, how did you resolve that? How did you endeavor to move forward when he's challenging you to be grateful for an event that just sickened you that, that could have almost cost you your family? Right. So I went away from that experience with picking a word that I wanted to filter my life through for the next year. And of course, I picked gratitude against what I really wanted to do. I picked gratitude because of Dave, Dave sharing his story and looking at the resilience of him and his sister and how they've come through that and how they honored JJ's memory and keep him alive, really, through, I feel like I know him, you know what I mean? And so I said, you know what? I need to swallow a little bit of this ego and I need to find my way to gratitude. And so I, it took me an entire year. I will let you know. At first I just started with things like meditation and prayer. I started in faith because I was like, I don't know how to get to it. I don't know how to get to it. And what came to me in that was that I recognized that as I used things like meditation yoga, working out, exercising, prayer, any of these things that help you focus inward. Um, the more I did that, the more I realized that while I was in those states, I wasn't angry. I wasn't resentful. And I started to notice that those are things that were taking up so much space, mental space for me, that I, I was in knots all the time still. Even though this element had been removed, even though I should have been really just focusing in on healing with my kids, I, I still had this area that just kept me tied up. So in approaching that, I, I started reading, doing research. What do I do? How do I get out of resentment? How do I get out of anger? And the doorway for me was forgiveness. And it's a very difficult thing. I did a lot of research on forgiveness because I knew I needed to forgive myself. And so I, I had to talk with myself. I had to talk with my kids. And I was the hardest person for me to forgive. And I 
think most people will understand and relate to that. But I also felt like, how do I let go of this person and what he did to my family? I'm not going to forgive him because I don't know how to forgive him. And the research that I did on forgiveness really opened my eyes to see that forgiveness does not mean you condone an action. Uh, forgiveness is not absolution. I'm not the one who has to let him off the hook. His, he answers to someone else and not to me. So for, for me, forgiveness was saying, I'm sorry, I forgive you for having whatever illness you have, and I will never have to interact with you again, and you don't even need to know that I did this. I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it so I can write this down and say, I'm giving it to somebody else to handle, and I'm giving it to somebody else to keep you accountable. And that is a higher power. And, and, and when you have to face God, whenever day that comes, that's, you know, that's between y'all. And I don't really need to have to bother myself with it. And I worked that way. And I worked on letting that go. And as I worked on that, it allowed me so much more space in my soul, literally in my soul. My whole being just felt like I had so much more space. And then I started saying, okay, what can I take from this? What is the gratitude, right? Now, I've worked through all these processes, but I still haven't basically said, okay, so how am I grateful for this? And the gratitude came in that I started recognizing, as I've said throughout this, that I have beautiful, strong, resilient kids that are here. My kids are here. And whatever else goes on, whatever residual fallout, whatever mental help we need to get, whatever therapies, whatever swings their lives go through, they are here. And we have that opportunity to go through it together without the interference of this individual. And that is where my gratitude is. My I love gratitude that. is that I... I still have my family. I do. It might not be perfect and we might be a little bit damaged, but it is nothing that we can't work through. You know, it's, it's, it, as I'm sitting here, I just had this, just this feeling of the situation and, and just for the benefit of some people that are listening, sometimes when bad things happen to you, um, that cause you frustration or fear or anger or whatever, sometimes I'll imagine the exact opposite scenario. In other words, I have a flat tire on the freeway. Well, what if that flat tire prevented me from getting in an accident that would have killed me or one of my family members, right? So like just taking the, mm -hmm. it takes the sting out of it. And so as you were talking, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, here this guy had introduced your kids to drugs. And then, you know, I look at the, at the drug epidemic going on right now. You look at, you know, my, my son just had, was on a 5,000 mile road trip. He was in Arizona visiting a friend. He was there a couple of days, and then I think the third day, um, they actually hear sirens and ambulance there, and all of a sudden, they're wheeling out this 23-year-old kid that had overdosed on fentanyl and cocaine, you know, in the, in the process, and it really upset my son, you know, significantly to see this body, this body bag, you know, being loaded in, and to know that this kid had just moved in, his dad had helped him move in to this apartment, et cetera, you, you know, a few weeks before, and so I sit here and going, you know, what what if the blessing through all of this is that had this not happened, had your son not had to be involved, have he not really seen what, you know, this man was and that true value, what if that 
drug introduction could have led to others and could have, you know, led to a situation where he got hooked on stronger, more significant stuff. Like, you just don't know. Like, yeah, it was a traumatic event, but yet, you know, through that event, you know, it really called him to, to question life in that moment and to have some clarity around, you know, who he was spending time with and who knows how that's going to affect his life and your daughter's life, you know, moving forward. So like, you you know, we can't see what we can't see. We don't know God's plans. And to your point, I think you just got to trust that there is a plan. But like for you personally, you know, I know you've said Ula has been so transforming for you. So, you know, just as we, as we, you know, kind of close out the show, I'm just wondering, you know, like where are you now? And then what do you think Ula did to, help you get to where you are? Are you in a good place now? Or do you feel like Ula was the major contributing factor to that or what? Yeah, so I am in a much better place. I think, like I said before, it's always constant as far as these healings. And I will say that my son did struggle in different areas. And sometimes, you know, even now he still struggles uh, with certain things. But we are, like I said, constantly tapping into health and to be honest with you he's tapping into ula now which is something he's known about but is now applying so yes ula you know with this is even still working through and refining and assisting and improving our family and so i won't act like it's all perfect right now but it has allowed us to see things, to pull back and see the areas of our lives, to be able to look at those key areas, and to be able to be honest with ourselves. And then to zoom back into them and, and tap into what we know we need. And I feel like, uh, for me, my life right now, yes, I, you know, I'm so distant from that. Um, I met up again with one of my best friends from high school, somebody I knew since junior high. And he had gone through some bad relationships and we just reconnected. Had we connected again, if this hadn't happened, we would not have connected. If this hadn't happened, um, the things he went through and the things I went through, we probably would not have reconnected because we, we had very different viewpoints before going through the things you've gone through. Yeah. Then you kind of go through things and it humbles you a little bit and, and you start to recognize the value in, in some of the, the things that you see in other people. And, I don't, I don't know, know if you can hear that. That's the hope train coming through right now. That's that's our hope train, oh. our, our, our local train that comes through. We call it the hope train and moving on down the track. Like, so uh, they're, they're extra like exuberant today, honking the horn, I think. <laughs> Awesome. So, yeah, so I do think that most, for the, for the most part, I think that I'm in a very good place. I am in a very positive place. I am totally able to live in gratitude and start, uh, gratitude comes very naturally now. And, you know, I keep working, you know, everybody's a work in progress. And if you're not growing, then you're not doing anything. You know, we were meant to grow. We were meant to, to, to live a life of learning and live a life of growth. And that's how I live and I love it and I'm sharing it. And, you know, and again, I wouldn't be where I am. I, you know, I have five beautiful grandchildren that um, I'm completely blessed. My daughter is married with, you know, 
two of those grandchildren and and in a good relationship. So I mean, there's just you know, there's just a lot um, that I am so thankful for. The beauty and, and the yeah, blessing so, and the ashes, right? Like out, out of these trials right. and tribulations, you know, there can be something that's beautiful that comes out of it. There can be right. something that is miraculous that comes out of it. And so as you reflect back on how you were feeling in, in, in the midst of the trial and in the, in the moment of flesh and of, of, of anger and anxiety and guilt and betrayal, and then think about how blessed you are now with those beautiful grandkids and seeing your daughter in a great relationship and a loving relationship. And you got these kids that you can be around. I mean, like that, that's the beauty. That's the hope in the situation that, that even the trials that we experience, you know, that's just, but a season, it's not forever. Just because you have a bad year doesn't mean you have a bad life. Just because you go through something challenging, like you went through, doesn't mean that there can't be something beautiful that's born out of it. Right, and and I think the biggest thing that Ula is is allowing is a legacy of change in the way um, my kids are thinking because both of them are very on on Ula right now, and also in the way that they are teaching their kids, um, so that they're not in a limited mindset, that they are in the right mindset, that they do know that they get to be themselves, they get to create boundaries, even as children. That was not something I learned when I was a kid. You just did what you were told. <laughs> and, you know, and I mean, it's true, you know, kiss your uncle goodbye. You know, that was a thing, you know. Now, I never did feel bothered by that, but we should allow our kids to have the boundaries that they need to create. All of these things are changing and shifting because of the experience that we had and the need to tap into a something that would help me pull through this. And those experiences are the things that led me to that. And so it's allowing this different direction and trajectory for the legacy that we are leaving and, and the way that the next generation and the generation after that are going to deal with things and come through things and hopefully never have to deal with this again oh. because of that. So your, that is one part. <laughs> yeah, from your lips to God's ears is all I was going to say. You know, let's hope that they don't have to right. deal with that kind of stuff. And I just, I just want to thank you, Deanna, for your vulnerability. Thank you for your message. Thank you for your story and, and sharing about how, you know, you were thrown something that you did not expect, but found a way to work through it, something that every parent would deem to be an incredible nightmare to experience, yet you're able to work through that, find a blessing in the ashes, and then share that with others. So thank you for, for being an excellent hope dealer for us. Uh, you've been an incredible guest. Thank you. Um, can I add one thing to this? Absolutely. It's short. Okay. The other thing that I wanted to mention is what I, um, what my big dream is would be to uh, create programs. I, I don't actually want to be the creator of the programs. I want somebody who knows how to create programs to create these programs. <laughs> I want to be the funder of the programs. <laughs> But I would like to fund programs and allow programs for people who have gone through this after the fact, when they've grown up and they've reached different phases. There's not really very many programs for the parents who have to deal with this other than just traditional therapy, which not everybody can tap into. Not everybody has that, the access to that. And then, um, you know, as kids go through different phases, like I said, teenagers are not teenagers. They rejected this. Later in life, they've tapped into it. At age 25, at age 30, we have tapped into it. 
So I would like to create some programs that would, would allow for that follow-up and the ability for these families to heal, you know, in, in a place where there's not a whole lot of programs out there for it unless you can afford traditional therapy. So that's, that's kind of one of my little big dreams. So let's let's uh, let's do some manifestation. I think that's an awesome Mm -hmm. dream. So instead of I would like to let's change the wording. Mm -hmm. I will be a six figure giver to programs that help families get through what we went through together as a family. You just keep saying that as a mantra. I will be a six figure giver, not gigger, six figure (laughs) giver to programs that come alongside families that have gone through something similar to what we went through. That's it. I will. I will be a six figure giver. I am not stopping until I get there. Um, and I will be a six-figure giver to help create these programs, oh, for sure. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Deanna, for your time and for your vulnerability, <laughs> your message, your story. We appreciate you and um, really grateful that you came on to share. Oh, thanks for having me. That was a great interview. What did you think about that, Sean? Uh, I agree with you. I, I mean, co- quite candidly, I was blown away. I was blown away at her courage. And I was blown away at how she's made it through that I think anybody that's listening that's a parent could only imagine what you'd have to go through yourself if the if the roles were reversed if that was our situation right mm-hmm. and so you know I think about murdering somebody in that <laughs> moment which I think that's natural I mean I wouldn't but like you think about that yeah. like you just would want to like inflict pain on them because they've done it to your family so to hear her talk about forgiveness, to hear her talk about a charity that she started, to hear her daughter, you know, thriving right now, married, right. kids, etc. I just I just think that God turns all things. He can turn anything into something that's beautiful or anything into something that helps others right. if we allow that to happen. Right. So I, I felt like that was awesome. I, I feel like she definitely felt, found the good in the bad, you know, and just kind of the strength that she had was incredible. I, I admire that. And I think that this story is going to be a story of hope for others. I think if you listen, this is the first time we've ever broached this subject, you know, like this yeah. um, had a situation like this on the air. And I think that there's somebody out there that can relate somebody that's been through it, somebody that may have suffered like she suffered and she's taking that horrible situation and turning something beautiful out of it. So, you know, that's awesome. So if people want to hear more about our hope radio podcast, how would they do so? We are on Instagram and Facebook at hope radio podcast, and you can find us on all the all the things. All like the things. iTunes and Spotify and all the platforms. Google Play. All anywhere of it. anywhere you listen to your podcasts. We are there. We are there. And I think we should do this one more time. I think we should do another interview. Let's do it. All right, let's go.